everybody, how's it going? This is Jordan from the Glad Trad Podcast. And for this episode, as you can probably see, that's not Rudy sitting across from me. I know, crazy, you know, unless Rudy got a lot more awesome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Rudy. Uh, no, this is this is my new friend, and this is a trad who lives in the Bay Area. This is Tasha Tormi. Say hello to our audience, Tasha. Hi, I'm Tasha. I live in the Bay Area of California. I was a SoCal native, and I'm involved with the Goretti Group, which is a movement for chastity and renewing purity. It's a Catholic movement. And yeah, I'm here to talk about all things Catholicism, Bay Area updates, and if you're looking to connect with other Catholics, if you moved during the pandemic or in a new area, I have some thoughts on that as well. Wow, I I appreciate you giving me the whole rundown so I wouldn't have to do that. I I thank you so much, you know, Uh, checks in the mail. Uh, <laughs> no, but and if for our audience, I was on Tasha's podcast, which is at the Gretty Group. If you were to look them up on Instagram or on YouTube, you'd probably see it. Um, and we had a huge rundown about uh, married life and Catholic dating and a lot of kind of really fun topics. Tasha had an excellent interview with me. So if you want to go and check that out, I'll put that in the description as well. Um, so Tasha, I want to get a little bit of background before we kind of dive into a lot of kind of the, the points I want to talk about tonight, a little bit about um, really Catholicism in the Bay Area. But first, let me get kind of your personal history. So tell me just a little bit about your Catholicism and what it's been like in in the particular neck of the woods that you're in. So I grew up in Southern California in a Novus Ordo Roman Rite Catholic Church. Pretty much whatever you think of when you think of Novus Ordo and California, that was kind of my church upbringing. Can I ask what, what city that was in? Uh, yeah, I went to Ch- a, ch- a church in Chino Hills. Chino Hills. Okay, gotcha. Everyone in the comment section, start looking. Yeah, St. Paul, St. Paul the Apostle, shout out to St. Paul. And uh, it's, <laughs> a, it's a good church. I'm not going to say anything negative about my home parish because, you know, a lot of good came out of it. However, um, growing up, I didn't know much about traditional Catholicism. I did go to a Latin mass at another church in Guasti uh a little town kind of near kind of near Ontario if you know where that is um there's an airport in Ontario mm-hmm. so we've flown there so what happened was is when i was going through confirmation i remember feeling like a lot of things that were being told to me were not really catholic and i was a little bit like skeptical so i told my dad i was like I think I need to go find like a more conservative Catholic church, but I don't know where to start. So he took me to this other confirmation program at a church that had Latin masses, which was this church in Guasti, San Segundo de Guasti is the name of it. And it's in a little town called Guasti. It's really cool because it's actually a replica of this church in the town of Guasti, which is, I believe, in Italy, Mm -hmm. they replicated the exact church here and they have Latin mass. So I noticed when I went to this church, even at the Novus Ordo, everyone dressed more conservatively. They had like a sign outside that's like, you know, cover your sleeves and cover (laughs) your knees. And they weren't saying anything heretical. Right. So I was like really into my faith for a while when I was there. And I was like 15, I was a sophomore. I even remember making a little altar in my room and like praying the rosary, like on my knees. I got like very into it, which I had not done before. Growing up as a Novus Ordo Catholic, I was, 
you know, I prayed and, and things like this, but we didn't celebrate feast days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't receive communion on the tongue or kneeling. I did not veil a lot of these older traditions I did not know about and I did not follow. So like fasting for me on Fridays, like all these kinds of things. So just that's why I say whatever you think of when you think of like Novus Ordo Catholic yeah, is pretty quintessential. Yeah, what applied to me um we didn't have like female deacons or like female altar servers really um i think that came a little bit later but you know the basic stuff god is love a lot of ecumenism a lot of our religion you know we worship the same god as like muslims and like are focusing on the similarities between like islam and christianity and judaism and protestantism instead of the differences Mm -hmm. so i didn't really have a sound catechesis and then i went to this other church which was very different so i had like a little bit exposure to latin mass there for some reason junior year i think it was due to a scheduling conflict i had to go back to the other church to be confirmed i was like super active junior year i transferred high schools i was doing a lot of like musical theater and plays so i think that the night at the other, I, I missed too many, or I like missed some, and they said, we can't confirm you here. So I was confirmed at the other church, uh, St. Paul, the apostle Catholic church in Chino Hills. Now, right around the time of me being confirmed, I remember telling my dad, I don't think I believe in all of this. And I don't want to be confirmed because I'm just not sure. Mm. My dad pretty much said, we're going to confirm you anyway, because I made a promise to the Catholic church that you'd be confirmed. Like that's that. Um, I don't remember getting answers to the questions I had or the objections, but I, I wasn't like kicking and screaming, you know, when I was confirmed, I was like, okay, like by that time I kind of came around and was like, okay. So I became confirmed fell away at 19 into born again, Christianity Mm. stayed there for five years was super active as a Protestant and was quite anti-Catholic then dated someone who was Catholic, who was a Latin mass brown scapular wearing Catholic. He had some of his own issues aside from that, which led in part to our breakup. However, he did re expose me to Latin mass because he went to Latin mass, but I don't remember us going to Latin mass together very much, maybe once or twice. We mm. mostly went to Nicordo, but he went to Latin mass. He didn't really explain to me why he preferred Latin mass other than just that he preferred Latin mass. Through that same time, I ended up finding my way into Catholicism coincidentally almost to dating him wasn't really a big reason at all. Um, and it, and it wasn't due to Latin mass. That relationship ended. I stayed in Catholicism, but Novus Ordo Catholicism. I, you know, once I left ministry as a Protestant, I tried to join ministry at my local church and was a a Eucharistic minister, Mm -hmm. easiest thing to get into. So I did that for a while and I did it reverently. Um, as reverently as I could with the knowledge I had. And then I kind of rediscovered Latin Catholicism by and large through Taylor Marshall. Shout out to Taylor Marshall. (laughs) Even though a lot of trads find him a polarizing figure, man, those TNT days. Those TNT days is the reason is one of the quintessential reasons this podcast exists, by the way. Those those TNT days set my heart ablaze. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
huge fan of Timothy Gordon, Taylor Marshall, and then you you go down that trad uh, spiral, if you will. Yeah. So I I was like, yeah, Latin Mass. So started going to Latin Mass, uh, St. John the Baptist down in Orange County while I was get, going to school at UC Irvine for my master's. Started kind of dabbling in different traditional circles and then ended up moving to the Bay Area during 2020 of the pandemic of July. Mm. And in the Bay, everything was like closed, like mass was happening outside. Right. Latin mass was restricted. The local Latin mass was in an Institute of Christ, the Sovereign King Parish, mm -hmm. which was being held at, out of a mini mall which is still being held out of a mini mall. That mini mall is scheduled to be demolished. That's another story. Is it still, we got so much to unpack, but Jen and I were there on Pentecost Sunday a year ago with the Institute okay. of Christ the King. In the mini mall. Mm-hmm. Candy Nueda and all those wonderful, wonderful people there. Yeah. You're very familiar with that community. That's great. Yeah. So then I started going to Our Lady of Peace in Santa Clara. Um, they are very active. And one, one of the things I love about that parish is they have confession during every mass. Mm -hmm. They have perpetual adoration. Many people veil, many people receive Eucharist on the tongue, on the knees by the priest at the altar. However, during the pandemic, they were doing mass in, in people's cars. Basically yep. we drove into the parking lot. We turned on the radio the priest came outside and then we would roll down our window and receive communion like by the hand from nuns, mostly uh, from sisters. So that was my pandemic mass life for the most part was car mass by myself. Didn't really know anyone. Um, and I think I'll pause there because I just gave you like three chapters. That is, I'm so happy that you did. There is so much to unpack here and all of it's so wonderful. <laughs> uh, and, and so many things, um, people know that like before the show and we've been on with each other before, you know, you talk, you kind of get to know each other first, but there's, there's entire sagas there that um, we got, I mean, obviously we're gonna have to have you back on, but like we gotta unpack it. So, I mean, I, I had kind of a similar upbringing of yours uh, I I grew up in what I'd call like the quintessential kind of more hippy dippy conservative Catholic parish out in the rural sticks of Colorado. Um, I didn't know, except for historical footnotes, what sacred music really was in relation to liturgy, what what rited liturgy really was, what the Latin Mass was. I knew, you know, I grew up in a very Spirit of Vatican II kind of church, and um, I fortunate because at confirmation for me, which happened when I was a freshman. Um, I was like, this is the faith, this is the faith of the church, and I never strayed. And the reason why I had a lot of my questions answered is actually because in a debate the year before I was confirmed on a cruise ship of all places, I got licked by a born again Christian. I mean, I got just routed. Where is that in the Bible? Don't you know I could commit a thousand murders a day and if I still love Jesus, I can go to heaven still? Right? Why do you guys confess to a priest? Like all the quintessential things. And I realized that despite having 13, 14, 15 years of Catholicism or, or what I thought was the fullness of the faith, I didn't know anything. Um, and so it's interesting because I, I think it's funny that there's a lot of trads. I think some of the best traditional Catholics, certainly the best Catholics throughout our history, tend to be those who either went away from the faith as they kind of received it in the childlike manner or they're Protestants that came in. Um, Rudy fell away from his faith a little bit and then had a whole reversion back too. So when you talk about um, 
having those questions and to the point where you said that you didn't want to be confirmed, which I actually really commend you on because a lot of people just look at confirmation as such a cultural familial thing that it's not a big deal. Um, do you remember what those questions revolved around or were you looking for, were you looking for, yeah. a, for something different that born again Christianity had at the time? I was not looking for something that born again Christianity had. To be honest, my exposure to some people who were more along that fundamentalist train when I was younger was through a Christian private school that I went to. And I I didn't see the good side of born again Christianity at that age. The site the the part of it that really set me on fire for Christ in my like 19, early 20s mm-hmm. years. I didn't see the whole like, you know. Oh, not the way Pentecostally kind of, yeah. No, rise, you know, I didn't see that part. (laughs) But I did see people who like thought all Jewish people are going to hell and like gay people are going to hell and the Bible is like everything. And like, I don't know, maybe they didn't believe in evolution. Like there's just a lot of like fundamentalist tropes that I saw and Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, thank God I'm Catholic. And I like, don't take the Bible literally. Yep, I know. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was at, but I, I didn't have like negative things against them. I just knew like they were Protestant. They broke away from the true church. And then all these other people started their religions. Like, so, and a lot more of them were divorced and I, and mm. I know some parents were divorced and um, I saw less of that in Catholicism. Um, and, a, and a bit more of that spirit of Vatican II of like openness to people of other religions and, you know, we aren't harping on the gays and doing all this kind of thing. So I was like, kind of like, okay, that was my version of Protestantism. But to answer your question, what were some of my questions? Um, I was more in that spirit of Vatican II, but I did not even know what Vatican II was, nor did I know what the spirit of it was. Uh-huh. I was just in it. And I thought, I don't know about hell and like maybe God doesn't care about all these things and like maybe animals have souls mm-hmm. like the same way that humans do and I thought um I was reading new age stuff too a little bit in high school like I had been exposed to the idea of karma mm. and the idea of manifesting your reality through your thoughts and visualizing and affirmation yeah. I read the four uh, agreements by Don Miguel, uh, which is kind of a new agey popular book. I was super into Napoleon Hill who wrote think and grow rich. He also wrote another book that might be on my shelf called like outwitting the devil. Oh my, you haven't burned it yet. Ah, it's probably here or I may have. Poser. I mean, this is my, this is my like childhood, childhood bookshelf here. So that's why I'm looking. I like how Napoleon up. Hill is a childhood bookshelf. Well, that's like, I got it. I got it. I got, I'm not, I, I want to preface this next statement saying that I'm very much not a communist. I'm like a traditional monarchist, but just for the sake of understanding what these people thought I bought at like 1918, the communist manifesto, which is sitting like over there somewhere just to kind of see, you know, a very yeah. short read, not very good. Wouldn't recommend. I mean, I do have a copy of the Quran to my right. Oh man. Oh, we got, oh, we have so much to unpack. You know, here's the thing though. And what your, your story is so interesting to me because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people and I'm seeing this now, right? I'm seeing this, the church in America is doing this really kind of funny little dance, right? Where a lot of people will tolerate traditionalists, 
but they don't want to really address the kind of arguments I think a lot of trads make. And so they'll say something like this now. I'm, I'm seeing this whole, let's get back to the letter of the Second Vatican Council. And it's funny because growing up in really only 30 years post the changes, um, it's interesting to me that I, my parish was very much, this is the spirit of Vatican II, the new evangelization. I heard all these buzzwords, right? And and so it's funny because I think that there's this great historical divorce going on, this like sweeping under the rug. They want you to look at the documents letters, but interpret them in the light of contemporary conservatism instead of like asking what those bishops brought back to their countries, which is much more interesting to me because the documents are written in a way that like Lefebvre signed them, but so did um, um, Bugnini, right? So that's interesting. But then it's like everyone went back home and within a decade, it was like, no altar rails, no communion on the tongue, no sacred hymnity, and the stuff had been rotting in the church prior. So I like I like hearing the story of, of especially trads because we all have like the same. I, I call them like our like our our liturgical war wounds. Like I'm sure that there are songs like with my wife and I we sing songs old like hymns we heard in mass. Sing to the mountains, sing to the seas, and then we like laugh about it because we're having like this like shared kind of. Trauma is too great of a word, but really it is this like experience of really beige, banal Catholicism, the lack of the fullness of the faith. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the the phrase hermeneutic of continuity comes to mind with everything you were saying about like, how do we interpret this? You hear that thrown out a lot. And I, I read most of a book about the writings from um, Pope Benedict um, Cardinal Ratzinger, and it was it was really I felt like he was doing a lot of work to make sense of interpreting Vatican II documents in light of other things that the Catholic Church had said. A lot of working of it. Wow. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, that's that's kind of what what breaks my heart with our kind of contemporary battles now. It's that when people kind of discover traditional Catholicism, at some point, you just go, "Huh, okay, well, it's a difference between doing something wrong, which is to say that." Vatican II was an invalid council. That just, as a matter of history, that just doesn't make any sense. Like the church had the competency to call it. My joke is that I agree with all the anathemas, dogmas, and, do and doctrines promulgated at the Second Vatican Council. Like you name them, I'll agree to them because none were promulgated. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that like, there is this sort of word salad because for a long amount of time as you and I grew up, like we were told this is the church as it's always been and always looked. And then you do some digging and sometimes even being exposed to Protestants will do this for you, right? Protestants will throw out a claim about the Pope and about Catholics and this fierce thing. And we're like, you know, Catholics sometimes feel like the hippy dippies of the of the Christian world, right? Like what's the actual conviction? Um, it's no wonder that so many Catholics in the pews aren't evangelized. They don't know or don't believe in the real presence. They rejected contraception a long time ago. You know, they they don't believe some don't believe in hell and as and, and I think across our culture, we're very like karmanistic kind of people. As long as I'm a good person, good things will happen to me. The watchmaker theory, right? God's really a deist. He doesn't really care what I do so much as long as I don't murder anybody. Yeah, that one, the deist thing became very popular in like high school, intellectual circles, mm -hmm. libertarian, libertarian circles, oh, yeah. conservative, like constitutionalist Christians in colleges you know, I'm a deist. I heard that phrase from many a man, 19 year old smoking their pipe, thinking they're cool. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So for you, so when you fell into born again Christianity, what was the kind of, 
I mean, it's like it's like turned off to Catholicism, sure, but what was like the door there for into and did you go yeah. more Pentecostal or did you go more like the fundamental list kind of route? I was in a Calvary Chapel movement, okay. which is kind of its I know. own thing. Okay. More on the fundamental, there they don't believe in speaking in tongues, which often goes with like Pentecostal Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so honestly going to different sermons and the pastors talk about hell of lot more than any novus ordo priest you'll hear and i was like you know if i believe in jesus which i i always believed in jesus but at in high school times and early college i was more of a universalist in Mm. that i think truly believe that no matter what you did and what you believe like god will save you jesus will save everyone uh, because uh, even the devil could be saved. Everyone can be saved. I've heard, you know, yep. we're going to have one big happy ending, kind of like the dare we hope. Yeah, I was going to say hell, hell's empty. Hell's empty. We can hope that. So, yeah. So basically I was like, well, you know, and I kind of stopped believing in hell after a while and thought maybe it is a metaphor for your mentality on earth. Ah, or yes. It, if you get maybe your soul gets deleted, maybe reincarnation's true, and mm. you get to go back again and try until you figure it out. I thought anything could be possible, but the idea that God could punish people forever could not be possible because that's not congruent with the idea of a loving God. Yep. So started going and listening to these pastors, and they were talking about hell because they wanted people to make a decision to get saved. Because for them, it's very black and white. You go to heaven or you go to hell. There's no purgatory and your works don't matter. Your works are filthy rags before God. They would quote that, you know, menstrual rags before God is what it really says, allegedly, okay? So I was like, yeah, if I believe in Jesus, I guess I got to believe in hell. And they would talk about, you know, if you don't believe in hell, then why is Jesus on the cross? And they're like motioning to the cross where there's no Jesus, Right, there's no corpus, yeah, right. they took down his body with the iconoclasm issues. So it's like, where is Jesus? Uh, but anyways, like, why is he down here? Couldn't you just come to earth, say, hey, everyone, love God, love your neighbor, peace out. I'm ascending back up. That's the commandment you need to focus on. So uh, basically, I had like a born again experience. I did an altar call. I prayed the Jesus prayer. Six months after that, I was baptized in the ocean. Uh, gotcha. You know, And then I became a decision follow-up leader at the Harvest Crusade. So when, when basically a big three-day rock concert where they preach the gospel and people come down, you give them a Bible, you pray with them and you tell them your next step is to read your Bible and to become a member of a Bible teaching church, Mm -hmm. meaning not a Catholic church. Yeah, not a filthy papist. No, there's no Bibles open there. Not a Methodist church, not any mainline Protestant church. Oh, funny. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, not a, I don't know, Lutheran no church. No Lutherans, like no Anglicans, no Presbyterians. No, they don't right, no mainline. Really churches that are called like Vineyard or mm-hmm. like the Vine. The Grove. Or like, cool. yeah, these cool names or like, I don't know, Community Church of this. So you were, in, you were in more trendy kind of born again or were you in like the more like kind of the, like the older Calvinistic kind of thread? not Calvinist, but a Calvary Chapel. So technically trendy because it's like Calvary Chapel is founded by Chuck Smith during the Jesus movement Mm -hmm. in the 70s. Chuck Smith was actually ordained in Foursquare, which is Amy Semple McPherson's church, which is ironic because Calvary Chapel doesn't believe in women becoming pastors, but their founder was ordained in a church that was founded by a woman. Right. Most Calvary 
Chapel people don't even know this. Well, this is this brings you to an interesting point. So I I love history. And with Protestantism, my question is always like, how do I actually distinct people? Because it's not enough when someone goes, oh, I'm a Christian. It's like, well, that's cute. Like, so, so am I like, congratulations. Uh, what do you mean by Christianity? And so it's interesting to break down like the history because it's true. It's like from especially the Protestant Reformation, um, it is, I mean, I really under, I've understood more. I, I speak of the Reformation more as a revolution because it really was. And I see a lot of ills and it's interesting because different countries even have particular strains of Protestantism and then strains therein of Protestantism. Like Calvary Chapel would not exist without Foursquare, which did not exist without like the birth of like colonial fundamentalism, which goes on and on and on, you know? Um, it's interesting in, in this country how nowadays, I've noticed like churches call themselves Christian, not to distinguish themselves from Catholics. They're not, they're not worried about us, but to distinguish themselves from mainline Protestants. You know, yeah. like they're not, they're not part of these old fuddy duddies who have collapsed in on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, basically I became like into the Calvary chapel stuff. So I believed in the rapture. That was a huge focus of Calvary okay. chapel. Mm -hmm literal rapture, pre-millennial, pre-tribulation, mm -hmm. um, studied eschatolo eschatology and times. We would have like Bible prophecy conferences with people like reading the word of God and like trying to understand it all. I was sitting there listening to different sermons by different pastors, taking notes on like Daniel and like, we're flipping now to like second Thessalonians and now we're flipping to revelation and like i would do this in my spare time for fun like yeah. i would sit there and like a puzzle like i can figure this out and i'm becoming learned and like this is what's going on so yeah i i was in that and uh met some great people you know had some great experiences had i not been a calvary chapel person wouldn't have been doing you know homeless uh outreach in skid row in la mm -hmm wouldn't have gone to Israel, you know, at like what, 22 or oh, you whatever. Went to Israel as a born again? Yes. So we no, that must the, be a weird experience. We missed the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And instead we went to the garden tomb and I didn't yep. know for years. Year, I did not go to the real place that Jesus. Uh, I hear this with Protestants all the time. Like they'll go to the Jordan river, but I mean, you go to the Holy land, the Holy land's like, it's like, Oh, that's either Franciscan or that's owned by the Orthodox at this point. It's like, take your pick. Like here's a church, here's a tomb, like here's all these places. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but it was still, it was still like a very, very, yeah. very beautiful trip. Yeah. But I would say that they shielded people from Catholicism a lot. I also feel like a lot of the Catholic sites are like Palestinian, like in Palestinian territory. So that was another reason like Bethlehem mm -hmm. is, That's Nazareth. True is but um you know calvary chapel is also very christian zionist mm. loves Jews, unquestionably supportive of israel um and i watched a very interesting documentary uh recently about like christian zionism and i found it fascinating because i was like yeah i can relate to like hopping on that train as well uh, because you know i was conservative then i was calvary chapel then i sort of became like a christian zionist yeah in you can criticize Catholics all day long, but like you cannot criticize the Jews because the Jews are God's people and all this stuff. I, and, and it's a very weird thing because it's like, wait, why can we, why can we criticize Catholics for so much? Mm -hmm. 
you cannot say any criticism of the Jews. Do you remember or what the name of the theology was? I have I have a really good buddy of mine. He's a Calvinist. Um, we go back and forth. We have fun. But I asked him this question once because, in case you haven't noticed, and our audience knows this for sure, but of all Catholics to kind of really not be uh, Christian Zionists, trad Catholics tend to be kind of towards the top. Sometimes really, really badly. But I think also, I think I like church triumphalism. You know, I'm not opposed to it. Like, I want everyone to come to Christ. It's important. Um, but he said to me, I was like, well, why is, I was like, why is there a strain essentially of Christian Zionism? Why is it manifest itself politically? That's interesting for me as a traditional Catholic, because I could say I could understand Israel as a, uh, as a, a, a democracy styled nation in a part of the world that's hostile. And therefore there's a client state relationship. And he was like, well, the problem is like, you guys believe in what he said was replacement theology. Yeah, replacement theology is what they call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they call it replacement theology. Theirs may be referred to as bicovenantalism or ultimately it stems from dispensationalism and they believe that there's two, like God grafted Christianity into his original plan with the Jews. And they would say that all the promises that are promised to the church, when we talk about that, Mm -hmm. that's church is replacing the Jews who rejected Christ. They would say, no, like the Jews are still having all their promises. It's very Plessy versus Ferguson kind of thing. It's separate, but equal, like this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but I would say they still kind of think we're slightly better or Christians, not Catholics, because yeah, Catholics not, are not Christians. Hell, we worship idols. What but, do you, here's yeah. a question. You believed as a born again, you believed, however, that like, while you wouldn't go, did you believe that mainland Protestants were damned or that they were, or was it just not really a topic? Because what I, I find. I believe that, I believed that there are real Christians present in yep. every church. Because the church is an invisible body of believers who do not have the same theology, but that's okay. Because as long as you believe in the core things and your core things don't, uh, you know, negate each other, which by the way, the core things are not really defined unless you're considering them to be the Calvary chapel distinctions Mm. or whatever the Bible says. But if you ask them questions like, you know, why do we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, but that church is a mid-trib or post-trib, those are not essential. As long as you know that you're not saved by your works. So as soon as Catholics start to believe it's your works and your faith, it's like, ooh, like maybe you're not really saved, but you can somehow be a Catholic. Basically, if you do get saved, it is because you didn't fully believe in whatever your other religion told right. you, like your other Christianity told you. It's, it's interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a precursor for how we've taken like invincible ignorance and now plastered it, I think. Like if, where once upon a time we would have said, if someone outside of the church is to be saved, it will be because of the grace is still merited through the church, not because of their Islamism or their Hinduism or their whatever it is. And now uh, most of us understand it as well, as long as someone's a good person somewhere in the Amazon, then, you know, they're, they're good. Um, I'm, I'm so, let me tell you this. I'm so happy that we got on this. And there's, there's so many things I want to ask you because it's so interesting. Like uh, we had, we had Nick Cavazos, the traditional Thomist on, and he's had a whole roller coaster before becoming a Catholic and being the first in his family, not just to be a Catholic, but to be a trad. So 
I'll, I'll try to shorten it because I know like we'll talk forever. Um, what got you out? Because it's interesting because you were in for five years and you were in during like late high school into college, really. Um, what was, was there a particular kind of thing? You talked about like dating with that guy, but was there any sort of argument or just was God just one day like, okay, that's enough? What got me out of Catholicism or what got- Or like, what got you out of born again fundamentalism? Because yeah. you were like pedal to the metal. I read a born fundamentalist, born again, Christian by David B. Curry. And I just came across it on Amazon and I was like, I don't know. I just read it. And then I, I was like, this had me thinking about things totally that I had not thought about before. I read his follow-up book called rapture, which uh, might, might be here. It's pretty thick. It's like this thick. Mm-hmm. And I read it in like three day time. And I realized I don't believe in the rapture anymore, like two thirds of the way through that book. And he mentioned Anglicans and Protestants, I mean, and Catholics also don't believe in the rapture. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, the Catholic church is right about that. Like what else are they right about? Mm. So then I went down this thing. I started listening every single debate I could find between a Protestant and a Catholic online. I listened to the journey home podcast, which Mm -hmm. is hosted by Marcus Grodi. I listened to an offshoot podcast, which is called deep in scripture, which Mm -hmm. features Protestant pastors who've converted to Catholicism talking about their new understanding of Protestant uh, scripture that they understood as a Protestant, how they understand as Catholic. I started reading what the early church fathers talked about with regards to like how do we baptize people and like the Didache and the Eucharist and believing the real presence. And I saw the practical need for tradition instead of just Sola Scriptura, because you can only have Sola Scriptura if you have a printing press, illiterate people who all speak the same language. And that just makes no sense. And that's such an invention that comes like 1500 years after Christ was here. And also, um, you know, how do we interpret the Bible without any authority or any tradition? That's why you get all these sects and all of these like heretical views. So I, and I, and I ultimately was like, yeah, you know, your works totally matter. Like, I think that the idea of saved by grace alone, or once saved, always saved is very dangerous. And also if it truly is a relationship with Christ, God will never force you to lose your free will to reject him. You can always reject him. You can always walk away from a relationship if it's truly a relationship, because otherwise, if you lose your freedom, then it's not a relationship. It's like slavery. Mm -hmm. And the more you get to know someone, just like in dating, you might start out thinking like, this is for me. And then you get to know someone better and you realize they're not. Mm -hmm. The same thing can happen with God. A lot of people don't think about that because they think God is all good. God is all loving. The more you grow God, the more you love him. Not necessarily. You might realize I like my sin. I like to live for myself. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to serve a master. I want to be disobedient. I'm having more fun being disobedient. Or maybe you start to think "Eh, God doesn't really care because I'm a pretty good person you know, God doesn't really care about this and God doesn't really care about that. And I mean, even as I say this, I see, I see that attitude in myself at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a a hypocrite too. You know, that's same for me too. And it's interesting because 
when we were when we were little, right, and in a good catechism class, our mortal sins explain to us as grave matter. We know it's grave matter, and we choose to do it anyway. And in high school, especially, and you know, as a young man, you know, there are plenty of sins and temptations for sin in this world. Um, it's interesting when you're deep trying to deepen a relationship with God, really looking at what it means to say no to him and to fall to sin by your own volition. There's a Father Larry Richards talk, I'll never forget what he said, but he was like, the only time God puts us down is if we look at him and say, put me down. And so I've heard a lot of talks on like how even like God even, here's, a, here's something really radical to think about. Even hell itself, separation from God is sustained by God, right? Satan's not annihilated. Satan does not want to serve God. And the thing about God is that he'll, he respects our free will enough to give us what we, what we ultimately choose. And so he, Satan said, I want to be separated from you. I hate you. And God said, very well, and, and separated, you know, and, and with the lack of all that love and everything. Um, it's interesting, I think, as, but you would agree, I'm sure, with this. As Catholics, I'm a huge believer that you need to have kind of a very almost Protestant-esque, like, give your heart to Jesus moment. Um, for me, I was very fortunate because it happened to me at confirmation. I was sitting on my rock, reading my letters to my godparents, and I, I felt the I felt the Holy Spirit wrap around me and and really cement me as a soldier for Christ. Um, I'm sure that you would agree too. Like as a Catholic, like we have to have that moment where the faith becomes not just regimentation and words by rote, but it has to be a real loving relationship with a God who died for you. Yes, I feel like I had like several moments, like moment after moment mm -hmm. of my relationship with God. And um, not all of them were pretty. Not yeah. all of them were, some of them were painful. Um, but life is painful. Mm -hmm. And God also allows for pain to draw us nearer to him. But it's our choice if we will accept the pain and draw nearer to him or accept the pain and feel like it's a punishment or like, why God are you doing this and run from him? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of reasons why people run from Catholicism and God is that they've been hurt by either God, they feel like God or the church or someone in the church. And that's why they run from Catholicism. And I've seen that a lot with Protestants who complain about Catholicism. They were raised in it. Someone hurt them. Mm. Parents, a lot of times, uh, or they were divorced and they feel like they're, they're, they're married again. And like, yeah. they don't want to deal with the annulment and everything. So, uh, yeah. And I think that I truly believe God is very merciful and, and gives a lot of grace, but I know, like, I know too much to be considered, like, I'll never get off scot-free for that's, anything. That's me right I there. Yeah. I know too much, right. which is kind of, curse but can be a blessing you know it is but it is you know you talked about the analogy of the relationship and that's actually very true um i'm learning especially now as like a husband and one day i'll be a father and all that kind of stuff i'm learning what it means to die to my spouse which is really difficult because um the best thing about being married which is living with a woman you love is also the worst thing about being married which is living with a woman that you love <laughs> and so i realized that in a relationship the only way that it works is that you have to be willing to fall in love radically with your spouse and jesus already loves you jesus loves us so radically that the best language it's described in is like is like song of songs it is described in this 
passionate, intimate, beautiful love in which he's pouring everything out on us, his own life, everything, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And we're called to, as best as we humanly can, reciprocate that kind of love with God and with each other. And I think that if that, if people realize that that's the heart of Catholicism, especially traditional Catholicism, because obviously like the way that we look at the mass as a sacrifice, I mean, where you might look at the priest in the Novus Ordo and, you know, we, we're glad Chad's here, but I mean, we all have these kind of these scars of our upbringing. And I think it's important to talk about it, to bring it out. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for my upbringing in the Novus Ordo. It taught me to love Jesus. I'm grateful for my parents and for the people in my life who are far better Catholics than I am, irrespective of their liturgy. Um, but to really look at God on the altar and to see that the mass is a sacrifice. And from this quintessential point, right, this perpetual sacrifice locked in at Calvary, um, all these graces, the salvation of the whole world being poured out. If that's, if that, if even a molecule that was taught to us in catechism, I mean, I think that the hemorrhaging would have, would have helped stop because I know that like by the time you, we get to high school, get to college, Catholicism is just a thing that we do. And maybe we were Eucharistic minister, maybe we were an altar server, um, but it never challenged. It never gave any answers and itself provided a very weak defense, I think, against the fact that the world is is fallen, it's a sinful place. There's a lot of graces, there are a lot of saints, there are a lot of sinners, and it's very possible that your choices now will affect your eternal reward, whether that's heaven or that's hell. Oh, I definitely, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So tell me, so tell me, so you are in you're in the Bay Area right now, yes? Yes, I'm in I San Jose. Okay, I, I'll be very careful because I have family that listen to this, but I will say that I had a horrid, um, I had a horrid experience of the mass at a Jesuit parish in or around San Jose. Uh, so I want to kind of now, but then again, I went, but then I went to the Institute of Christ the King in their little shopping mall. I like Latin ghettos; they're kind of fun because. You know, I think that's where the most the holiness is. I'm reminded of the early Christians, right? It's like they had to go out to like middle of nowhere for this stuff. So will you just give me an overview of what is what is Catholicism? How does it feel in a place like Northern California? Because as you know, Catholicism yeah. feels different in different parts of the world. I, Colorado Catholicism has a different feel than Southern California. I can tell you that much. Well, I think that so. I actually go to Our Lady of Peace the most often now, which is Novus Ordo. But uh, I get so much there that even though it's not Latin mass, like when I weigh the balance of everything, like my heart is more drawn there for a lot of reasons. So I would say like, I'm not really a, tra a practicing trad right Poser. now. Because, because I go more to the Novus Ordo and, and it's for a lot of reasons. One of which is the perpetual adoration. Mm -hmm. Another is the confession every day. There's yeah. mass every day. There's confession. Another is the great homilies that like the last homily I heard was about how we should be willing to like endure anything as a martyr than to commit one mortal sin. Mm -hmm. And how contraception is like ruining us, like all these other things that you just don't hear in like other church environments. You know, I receive on my tongue and um, on the knees very frequently there. Is it Adorantum or is it still, is it still to the people? No, it's, it's to the people. It's yeah, not I just got to whisper something in Padre's ear. He's already on the right track. 
Yeah, there's a few different priests. I don't think any of them do at Orientem, but um, it, it's possible that one of the priests do it at a time that I, I don't go because there's so many masks there. I have a lot of friends who go there now, and I'm actually in a book club where we're reading Love and Responsibility, and it's like all people who go there go to different churches in addition. A lot go to a Latin mass or like a Melkite or some mm-hmm. older, but they still go to Our Lady of Peace for a variety of reasons. So for me, if you're in San Jose or in the Bay area and you're looking for community, I think that that church has the strongest young adult community, uh, to kind of plug into. I would also recommend young Catholic professionals. And I know the people who run the Silicon Valley chapter and they're great. They've remained active throughout the pandemic. There's also in, um, San Francisco, there's star of the sea, which has Latin mass. There's also Dominic, both of those churches have great big young adult groups. And there's also a church in Oakland that has a Latin mass too. I don't make my way out to Oakland and I don't make my way out to San Francisco, mostly scheduling and also like safety, especially with a car. Like there have been a lot of break-ins in San Francisco. I'm sure. Yeah, we just saw the Nordstrom thing yesterday. So Nordstrom is, you know, and that was like, I think even in Walnut Creek and a few other places. So yeah, Santa Clara is super safe. So that's where I go. But um, I think that it's so hard, right? Everyone needs different things because I was a Protestant and a born again Christian. It's such great community there for me. Community is like very important. And I think I've realized more so recently, more important to me than even tradition and and Latin mass. And that's been a very recent realization for me. If I'm going to Latin mass by myself in the mini mall and like, I don't feel like I have friends and I don't feel like I have community. And I don't feel like I don't, I've, I tried making friends with some people there and I just don't feel like it happened. I'm not putting that on anyone, but like, if I don't feel like I have a bunch of friends around me or, or at least like I can run into people Mm. or I hang people there I just feel like a loner and it just puts me back into how I felt when I was going to my car mass for so long I was so distracted going to the car mass I was like oh my gosh like my phone's right here you know like I'm I'm just like distracted so for me I I just need community and like I think that yeah if I found a Latin mass community because there's there's also some SSPX churches in the area um that Wait, am I saying that the Lefebvre ones? That's yeah, SSPX. SSPX right? Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't been to those. I've been close to going to those a few times because I've had friends invite me. And every time I've felt conflicted about going and ended up not going. Mm-hmm. But um, those are the other um, Latin mass communities. There's also a church out of Prunedale, which is like an hour Ooh, away. Man out of um, a priest's house, I believe it's Melkite. Mm-hmm. And he has permission from there. I think they have like one bishop or something because, you know, it's not Roman and they do mass there. And some people drive all the way there. And there's actually been a community of people who sort of left the Latin mass mm-hmm. to go to that. They, they went east basically yeah. because they couldn't find a Latin mass that was like accessible and frequent. And I've seen that with the new motu proprio. I've seen some people looking for other alternatives like Ukrainian church. Mm-hmm. Or Bitcoin I or- will say that I, I think that the prettiest right outside of my own beloved Roman right. Uh, I went to Ukrainian church in Florida 
And I was like, this, I was like, this is, that is the greatest experience of divine liturgy I've ever had. So my mom is Ukrainian. Okay. Well, there you go. So that, is that your birthright then? My mom was raised Ukrainian Catholic, not Mm -hmm. Roman Catholic. And I had been to a couple of Ukrainian masses back in Detroit in Michigan when we would go visit family. So I had received communion with like the spoon and like. Uh Uh-huh. Both. uh, Yeah. I think it's, oh. Yeah. And and they have a lot of the iconography that's very similar to like the Orthodox in style. Mm -hmm. Um, but I haven't been to a Ukrainian mass in a long time. I should go. Now yeah. I kind of want to go. <laughs> well, I will speak into what you said there, because Rudy and I did an episode on authentic Catholic community. We had one of our patrons talk about this dilemma. Um, I can tell you firsthand that when the fraternity in L.A., before they had the churches they have now, they were borrowing a church, essentially. 7 p.m. mass on Sunday nights. It's hard to foster communities when you don't have a space of your own. Um, I'm sure that the Institute of Christ the King is discovering this in real time, right? Because they were technically borrowing five wounds. Um, and it's really, really frustrating. So there is, so I, I know this as, as especially as like a trad, you know, um, we place, uh, rightly so, a preeminence on what liturgy is, what righted liturgy is. I'm not saying that it's devoid in the new mass. Um, I tend to think that the better new mass looks, essentially it's just an English Latin mass. So, you know. But I've, I've been to some genuine reverent ones. I've been to ones where, like the Anglican Ordinary is a perfect example. I've always said, if the new mass was essentially the Anglican Ordinary, high Elizabethan English and everything else pretty much untouched, as a traditionalist, I probably would still edge towards Latin, but I don't think we'd be having the same kind of fights. Um, Community is important. I mean, and I don't, as we kind of have these liturgical wars and have to really entrench ourselves, I don't want people getting this idea that that if they feel like they're not feeling like they have a community to come to and that that's that's working against their their relationship with God. It's not fair for us to just go, oh, well, just suck it up, buttercup. I'm a huge believer in people building the communities that they seek. Um, but I mean, we're all but at the end of the day, and this is the thing for trad series, like, you know, we're all Catholics and there are plenty of good Orthodox people in other parishes. Um, you know, Jordan Pacheco, as I am, wasn't radically different, I would say, before I fully cross the Tiber in Latin. Um, has some very different, has some very cool thoughts now, I'd say, but I think was relatively the same sort of person. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And I think people are drawn to the Latin mass for different reasons, not all the same. Some people it's like, they love the reverence. They love the Latin. They love the vestments. Some people love the conservative aspect or like the sermons or the homilies, you know, they feel like it's better. Some people, um, find it, they like the silence or they like the music, you know? Um, and I think that I'm just kind of like, you know, wherever you feel like you're really growing and joyful. And, and as your name says, the glad track, right. Um, we don't want to become begrudging and angry about where we're going. Mm -hmm. And I just felt more happy, I guess, going to Our Lady of Peace for a variety of reasons. One of which being that the mini mall environment, it made me feel sad. It made me feel like, like the black sheep of the Catholic family Mm -hmm. or like to use a colloquialism, the redheaded stepchild why are we not in a parish? And I will say that I felt angry Mm. and I felt angry about a lot of the circumstances that led to the situation. 
And I felt like not really, I'm, I'm trying to speak carefully because obviously I don't want to speak ill of the diocese or anyone. I mean, but I by all like, means, you've seen our channel. We do have a mad trad sections. <laughs> I, I, felt, I felt not cared for or provided for. And I, I, I can't, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to too much about that only because sure. I'm trying to lead a ministry still in that area. But I just felt like that I felt that way going to this church in a mini mall during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it shouldn't be a secret that Jesus is here. And yet no one outside of this environment can even tell because we're yeah. renting space in a mini mall that's going to be demolished. And I tried to be positive about it for a while and think, you know, it's like the early Christians and we're foraging our own way and, you know, the tradition lives on. And I, and I loved seeing the big families with like 10 little girls, maybe not 10, probably like five little girls wearing like veils and like dresses. And like, I loved that, but I also just felt like, I don't know, there's just a, a lot of things. So for me, I was like, communion is a confessions always at Olap. You know, I love that there's always people there. Um, adorations there. I might run into someone I know. And for me, that was very comforting. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And you know, I think I, I mean, the charism is happiness and our motto is laughter and war. We're having homilies at Our Lady Mount Carmel, which is one of the biggest fraternity parishes one of the most beautiful. I mean, it is like, it is night and day. I love St. Vitus in Los Angeles. I was back there um, a couple of weeks ago for a wedding. Um, and at mass, they they have a little bell that they installed that they ring to summon the people for mass and at consecration. And I've never, I've never had a liturgical bell that close before like that. I was like, I could, I could feel like the, the Catholic ancestors in peasant lands listening to that bell out in the fields or something like that. Um, I was, but our homilies at church right now are, you have to be prepared for what happens if they take the mass and the sacraments, because they already did. Um, you had, I mean, we, it's like the church is kind of trying to forget that it went through COVID, but I think that we, we saw the real cowardice and the real heroes that are in the church. And it was really distressing because I think it revealed that there are far fewer heroes than we ever imagined that there were even amongst good priests. And it's not to say that they were not good priests, but these precautions have decimated, rightly so, I think, a lot of genuine trust in what the mission of the church is and has forced us as Catholics to take a hard look at what does it mean for the first law of the church, which is the salvation of souls. It's frustrating that in the case of St. Vitus, it is the first church in the archdiocese, which has been built in over 50 years, it's like at this point. I mean, it's it's radical. And LA has some very beautiful churches and they're emptying, you know? And it's kind of frustrating. They're like, okay, so they stuck us up in San Fernando in the Latin ghetto. And that, you know, like it's like the sticks. There's a homeless encampment right over here. Um, I've been there before. I've been to the, that place. So yeah, I know exactly. And, I'm, and I got to tell you, I, I'm, it's so near and dear to my heart. I love it so much. And I love it because I thought, I was like, and I'm still like that. Um, where it's like Carmel's beautiful and it's entrenched and they built it from the ground up and that's what a church should look like and that's what a bishop should look like when they support the mission of tradition. Um, and in these other places, you have these pretty churches in, in San Jose that have essentially heterodox. 
And for Jen and I, funny enough, like in order for us to come home to hear some sanity, we had to go to something I guess that we're more used to, which is like the mini mart rented space because yeah. of financial issues. I don't want to get into like the whole five rooms thing, but it's a genuine thing. Um, I'm always very careful because I, I, I understand that demographics don't lie. The world, the Catholic Church is going to be in a very different place in 10 to 20 years. There literally is just going to be enough trads to have a legitimate say on things. The 1% now is growing exponentially. Even trads who are in the Novus Ordo or Orthodox Catholics, I mean, the pendulum swinging, especially for the American church that way. And so for the purposes that I want to be at the forefront of, I think you do this in a lot of your work and the way that you speak too, it's like, I don't want traditionalists as they come in mass, you have to learn to take that anger and anger can be righted, right? So it's not that it's not, it's illegitimate, but if we don't surrender all of these things before Jesus, if we don't learn from the imitation of Christ and accept our joys as well as our sorrows in the exact same kind of strain, then we are proving ourselves over and over again. We can never be worthy of tradition and worthy of the mass, of course, but we're going even farther to prove ourselves unworthy of these things. There's no reason, you know, it's like if you accept that weak men and bad bishops and bad priests and horrible circumstances exist, I say just make the best of it for you and your family. And if that means that they're going to try to strip the mass and the sacraments and they try to lock you down again and whatever it is, it's like, all right, well, I still have my faith and, you know, they can't take that. Kind of going on what you said about St. Vitus, did you happen to get their Christmas cards last year or see their Christmas cards? Yeah, I saw their Christmas cards last year. They were so based. Mm -hmm. So Do you remember I, what they said? Yes, yes. Well, I remember what mine said because uh -huh. I was looking at it the other day. So on the cover, it's a closed door with yeah. a wreath on it. And you kind of think, oh, it's like a normal Christmas card, a little ugly, but like, okay. Mm -hmm. And um, on the inside of mine, I had the famous painting of the slaughtering of the innocents. Oh, yes. I think we had that too. Or at least I got it sent to me as a text thread. You're like, whoa. And then on the back, it gives an explanation about how the closed door is a symbol of how we were given the stay at home orders during COVID. You know, we were shut out of churches. We were told to stay home. And then they picked like four different paintings to alternate and they gave an explanation for each one. Obviously, the slaughtering of the innocents was to celebrate the election of Joe Biden, our Catholic pro-choice president, a very well, so pro-president. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's funny because I have a coworker actually at school and she's Protestant and she says, your president. I say, why do you say he's my president? She says, because he's Catholic. And I told her, I said, he's, uh, you know, not formally, but like he self excommunicates when he advocates for these things. So this is not rocket science. Excommunication is an act of love. It's like when you discipline a child. Yeah. Now, I, yeah, I'm see, I'm such a I'm such an old fuddy daddy. When I was growing up, um, when I was a younger man, I was told, Jordan, if you participate in an act which is intrinsically evil and sinful, you put judgment upon yourself and that's automatic excommunication on yourself. The church doesn't need to pronounce it. And I said, oh, gee, well, what would that include? And it said having an abortion or assisting in someone having an abortion. And I might be a pleb sinner that I am. But I, we had a whole, we had a video, we ruffled a couple of feathers, but we had the question like, I mean, we we're flat out. It's like, can you be a Democrat and a Catholic? And it's like, if God allows for republics and democracies, 
which the jury still out on if he likes them. But if he allows them, um, voting becomes something that needs to be done through the conscience. It's not you, you cannot put politics and religion in two different boxes. It doesn't make any sense. So if you vote purposely directly to enact the killing of children, obviously these things are going to be counted against you. It's, it's, it's obvious. It's a, it's a simple argument. But because, you know, where we're at in the culture, it's much yeah. easier just to sweep these things under the rug because. And I, and I had this discussion with some of my friends who are Catholic who voted for Biden. And obviously they would say that as long as you're not voting because of their stance on abortion, if you're voting because you believe that we need more welfare, or better immigration or something like that. You can't like give that, money to Planned Parenthood as a Catholic. Well, Planned Parenthood they, provides a lot of services that aren't abortion. But you know yeah. what you can't do? You can't write a check to somebody who's the biggest abortion provider in the empire. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, but that would that would be like their argument of as long as you follow your conscience, the Catholic Church says follow your conscience. And if your conscience leads you to vote for someone who it's like mm-hmm. to support abortion, and that's not their main reason why you're supporting them or the reason, you know, and, and on a on a top topic of the pro pro-choice, pro-life stuff, um, I hosted for my last Ready Group event a documentary film we showed it called the a matter of life Mm. came out this last year we had uh the people from pro-life san francisco come and talk the women who run pro-life san francisco are democrat progressive atheist two of them are vegan Mm -hmm. and they you know i'm none of those things but they are pro-life because they recognize that abortion is what it is and they're not going to mince words about it yeah and it's so fascinating to me that you know in san francisco the women who are leading these you know these protests who are going and and holding ucsf you know accountable for their actions raising awareness about this they are democrat progressive feminists and atheists Mm -hmm. and i mean kind of going back to the state of the bay area catholic thing why aren't Catholics really leading pro-life San Francisco? You would think they would. Now, mm-hmm. San Francisco is a liberal city, but you would think they would. And um, I, I think that, that that's an interesting thing that's happening there. I think that the Bay draws unique people to it, just like SoCal draws just a like very- LA, yeah. LA has a lot of dreamers, a lot of entertainers, mm-hmm. a lot of people running from something and who have big aspirations. They want to get into Hollywood and an entertainment. Yeah. They love the beach and they're into like that spiritual thing. You know what I mean? Like I'm a Ooh. yogi. Man, I feel like I'm back. <laughs> yeah. And then the Bay draws a lot of cerebral people who really want to make money, who mm. want to work tech. Um, who are kind of liberal intellectual, but not the, not necessarily the progressive liberals, although there's a lot of progressives there, but I'm just speaking about the Bay, like in general. Mm. So I would say that um, the, the people in the Bay Catholicism, it feels a little bit more cold, Mm. I would say than in LA, LA 
at least for me, super easy to plug into a warm group of Catholics who invite you over, who want to get to know you, who want to schmooze. And I feel like a lot of the Bay Area, the Catholicism is more a business thing in that it's like they go to mass, they have their religion, they have their little like cliques and groups. But it's not like there's a lot of huge groups and a lot of people co-mingling. Mm. In LA, you you know, people go to Santa Monica, people go to, you know, St. Vitus, people go to St. Charles Borromeo, people kind of co-mingle and you kind of know each other very easily. Yeah, you know the factions, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that up there, it, the factions are pretty delineated and mm. there's a few people that you might know from you know but we don't get we don't get a lot of people from san francisco coming down to san jose even though it's only an hour to them it's like oh it's an hour but to la it's like an hour it's like you drive an hour come to colorado you know i mean here we measure this is the funniest difference i've noticed from living from california to colorado here in colorado we measure things by miles uh how far away oh it's like five miles up the road because in our heads that translates to five to ten minutes in LA, you have to measure everything by time because it could be five yeah. miles. And 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna take you an hour if it's a 405 or something. Yeah. Um, man, I'm so I'm so happy. I, I know there's just so much to unpack. I know that I'm running short on time with you. Um I suppose let me ask you this. This will this will be kind of like the good wrap out, you know, but like you've done a lot of work, you've done a lot of work with ministry, you know, you've done stuff with the Gretti group, you've You've had you've had your hand in quite a bit of pies. Um, yeah. And so I started a book club. I started a book club see, on Zoom. Yeah. During the pandemic, I promoted it on Facebook when I knew no one. I started it in January of last year and went through April. And we had about 20 to 40 young adults come weekly to read screw tape letters and talk about it. And I would break people up into small groups. Even on Valentine's Day, I threw a Zoom Valentine's Day for Catholic singles. We had 20 women and 20 men come, most of whom I did not know. Wow. And put them in different groups. I had my guy friend lead the guys. I led the girls. And we talked about what did we want the other sex to know about like dating? And like, we came up with three things. We came back together. I opened up the chat so people could slide in their DMs, ask people out, whatever. And yeah, a couple of people did connect from that. But I say this only because I hear from so many Catholic singles, especially, or young people. I don't know where to meet young people. I don't know how to do it. You all have a phone or you have the internet just go start your own thing. Reach out. If you know three Catholic people, get them to invite three other people, Mm -hmm. Catholic, Christian, Anglican, Lutheran, whatever, lapsed Catholic, get a book, read it, or just read the Bible. I mean, there's so much you can do. You can read the catechism, a a section. You could watch a Fulton J. Sheen talk and talk about it. Listen to something and talk about it. Listen to an encyclical or read it and then come together and talk about it. Even if it's something you disagree with, Go read Father James Martin's book uh, if you want to talk about it. Whatever, you know. I mean, you're not going to get me to do that. Sorry, Tasha. That's a bridge too far. I had to look at his face in The Irishman already. It's called Building a Bridge. Wasn't it called Building a Bridge? It's called Building Bridges or something. See, you said that was a bridge too far, but I was trying to make a pun with the the Building Bridge. (laughs) I guess I'm just saying, like, don't be a lonely trad. 
Yeah. Don't be lonely trad. Um, and obviously trad communities, you know, are, are hopping places. If you go, there's a lot of young people, but there are still some isolated people who, for whatever reason, they live far or they can't get themselves to a Latin mass. Maybe they don't have a car or maybe there's other circumstances. Their schedule doesn't work out. Connect with people on social media. I'm part of a few Facebook groups. You can connect with people that way. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of like my plug to say, get creative, be bold and try to connect with other people. If you're needing fellowship, I'm, I'm so happy that you say that, you know, so many, again, so many of our kind of issues, things to deal with. I'm a huge believer that everyone has the tools that God gives them as he tells us in the Bible in order to deal with their problem. Right. There are, there are people who I'm very fond of who are liturgical warriors. I mean, they're the most brilliant kind of people. They will they will tear down and build up the history of the church and why liturgy matters. There are those who are drawn to sacred music, sacred architecture, and they that's the hill that they'll die on. You know, there are those who come to Latin mass or into tradition. Um, the the arguments are there, like the intellectual, the the spiritual, the theological arguments are there, but they just went. You know what? I had never heard Palestrina before, and I'm not going back to my tambourine. There are those who understand the importance of community. Jesus says, where two or three gather, there I am in their midst. Um, this is an emphasis. We're not, the, the era I think of traditionalists in particular being alone and isolated is over. And I, I think that's that's one of the reasons why we've caused kind of an upstart with the, with the from the current papacy to like, you know, some, some little fringes of the church, because it turns out that we're louder than we thought we were and that we're not so isolated. And, you know, there are factions and sometimes they're very silly. It's, you know, you don't want to get caught up in like, the Catholic Twitter sphere, which is a cesspool. Um, it's very unfortunate when people who are seemingly our brothers, like you know, Taylor Marshall and Timothy Gordon, have a falling out because we all feel like, you know, dads broke up. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, it's like you have your podcast, you have your platforms, I have my podcast, we have our, our Rudy and I, we we have our thing. And but we're also making sure that our environments, our immediate environments, are our most important things to cultivate. And so to kind of echo your message, we have plenty of of our listeners who they do feel alone. They might be the one, the only one in their family. They might be the only one in their friend group who've crossed the Tiber. They might be the only Catholic that they know. They may be going to a Latin ghetto or they may be going to a different mass and they just don't, or they might be going East, right? East as a Latin all your life is a fish out of water experience. And so I think that like, as we kind of look about how to pick up the pieces and restore a lot of things that we were lost, we have to do it together. Um, and so my, my plea is the exact same as yours. You know, it's like, if you feel alone, if you feel isolated, if you're listening, you know, you're not, there are groups, reach out and say, hello, you know, comment down. We get a lot, we get, we've been getting little pings from people emailing us. I had a girl, uh, she hasn't replied back to me for watching, got to reply back to me, but you know, she was like, she, uh, she heard our, our, she wanted, she was essentially trying to play matchmaker for her sister. It's really kind of cute. Um, you know, and so it's kind of like fun. Like there's a whole vibrant kind of thing. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you, Tasha, and then I promise, I promise I will, I will let you, I will mail the check and release you from your chains. Uh, but can you give, can you give uh, our audience a recommendation of a book or something like that to read? I know that you're always chirping about these sorts of things. Oh, okay. Well, I, was I know, looking... I know that was a song. I was one out of left field, but I'm telling you. Let me make sure I have it right. Cause I think it's called like the Latin mass explained. Yo, it is called the Latin mass explained. If it is okay. the, this I one's not I've... this thick. 
Yeah, it's pretty thin. I was looking at that this morning and I almost took it with me on my plane ride here. Um, but then I, I decided to take a fiction book because I was like, I've read this before. Yeah. Um, I would also recommend, oh my gosh, I think everyone should read Love and Responsibility, the actual text, not just these summaries. It's very challenging, not, not like uh, it's hard to understand. I think for some people it might be a little hard to understand, but it's just very challenging on your idea of love mm -hmm. and like really living up to that. And I think it's more important than even theology of the body, because if you don't understand the purpose of love, how are you going to understand the purpose of sex? How are you going to stand marriage and all of that? Um, so I would definitely recommend Love and Responsibility by JP2. Cool. Absolutely. His feast day is my birthday, October 22nd. There you go. And now we've doxed you. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> 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 Thank well, you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on with us. Glad Chad podcast. If you guys liked what we had to say, and let's be honest, we know you did. Tasha, where can they find or follow what you had yeah. to say? You can also follow me at the Goretti group. I post some stuff there. I do some social media for them there. Um, I might be starting to do my own thing a little bit more with podcasting and Catholicism. I was recently on the religious hippies podcast if you want, you can listen to hers, um, a Catholic perspective with the religious hippie. And we talked about discerning your vocation and my journey of considering becoming a sister, which is a whole nother story. Um, so yeah, you can find me on those places. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Please go ahead and follow on. We'll put some of your links down below, of course. Uh, for those of you who are listening, thank you so much. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. Tell us about your own community. Tell us about your own stories. We love your stories. Oh my gosh. We've had so many people give their wonderful tellings of how they fell into tradition, how they came into Catholicism, just bar none, how they were away from the faith. All of it's important. So if you want to comment down below with one of your stories, that's great. Thank you to our patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, there's a link right there. It just popped up because it's magic. Don't forget to share this video as well and to please pray for Tasha as well as Rudy and myself. For us over here, God bless you and may I keep you. Adios. <laughs>